Amen. Let's remain standing as we read God's Word this morning. We'll be in Psalm 8 for our, one of our primary texts this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, join me there, or you can see it on the screen. Let's hear the Word of the Lord together, shall we? Psalm 8, verse 1. Lord our God, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you set in place, what is, a, what is man, I want to say, what is man that you remember him? A son of man that you would look after him. You made him little less than God. And crowned him with the glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All the sheep and oxen. As well as the animals of the wild. The birds of the sky. The fish of the sea. That, that pass through the currents of the sea. Lord our God. How majestic is your name. Throughout all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may have a seat. Well, this morning's a bit of a different sermon, um, as we're not in a series. We'll, we'll, we'll get started with 1 Corinthians next Sunday. But today is a, is a day that is um, set aside by most uh, evangelicals, uh, even Reformed, Protestant reform like ourselves, to stand and, and consider how we might speak to some of the most important issues facing our culture today. Things like abortion, things like the distortion of good, God's good gift of sexuality, and this things like how we deal with um, issues of, 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 of loving our other cultures and, and whatnot too. So we, we want to take this time this year. I, I don't normally take this sermon every year because I think we, we deal with these typically as they come along to us in the text. But I think there are times in, in, our, in our church and in culture that we just need to step aside, talk about these things plainly try to apply the scriptures to these things as the best we know how, and to think about how we might respond to the things that we are facing in the world as we know it today. And so you'll find a little thing in there um, uh, called the Sanctity of Your Life, this little handout about why this, this Sunday exists. It primarily has been originally, traditionally, about dealing with how the church responds to the issue of abortion, but also we believe Sanctity of Your Life extends well beyond that, uh, womb to tomb approach, right? If you want to hear that word, you've heard that thrown around probably. Um, how this really applies to how life is being distorted in our world on so many different levels. What does it mean to be human is a question that, honestly, who would have thought would be unclear today? Yes? Like that, you can't even answer the question now what it means to even be human because there's so much distortion about what basic things that would seem, you know, clear to us from just experience, let alone the scriptures, just from experience of what a human is, seem to be in question today. I'll give you an example from my own life. So in 1994, I graduated from Stanton River High School in Manita, Virginia. Okay, little, little high school outside of Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, and um, we were preparing to graduate, all the graduation festivities that year. And that year, our class, our senior class, voted to do something that other classes hadn't done in quite a while. We did a baccalaureate service in addition to our our service, and if you know anything about baccalaureate service, or their religious observance, there are times when we set aside to thank God about His institution, about we, how His direction and the future of young people's lives. And of course, 
you know, even then, 1994, you know, there was some pushback, even in some parts of our own uh, uh, senior class, but very small. 90% actually voted to have the service, whether or not they were Christian or not. And, and frankly, it was a volunteer service in the first place. You didn't have to participate if you didn't want to. But uh, our valedictorian chose that year, chose to, to stand against it and made it very vocal the best she knew how, and she would post things on walls in the school leading up to it about how we shouldn't do this and that this is archaic and it's imposing values, Christian values on people in the school and there's all kinds of things. What you need to know about our valedictorian, which would have been scandalous back 29 years ago, believe it or not, um, was that she had come out as a lesbian and had been actively so and been very much out there about that. And, and back then, it was, that would have been super rare. I mean, I, I hate to think the 90s were back then now, but apparently the 90s are back then now. I don't know if you know that or not. Um, but 90s were back, you know, that's then, right? And, um, and so I just, you know, I remember as we were, were going, driving in, and, you know, she made a big deal about it, but it still ended up being a wonderful service one way or the other. The irony of the whole situation was the school we were in was so, we, our class was so large, we didn't have facilities to house all the graduate activities and have all their friends there. So we ended up actually uh, renting a facility nearby, a university nearby my home, Liberty University, to do our, our actual graduation, which was the irony of ironies. Um, but it wasn't a religious service in and of itself. But I thought that was hilarious because she had nothing to say about that. I, I don't know. All right. Now, fast forward 29 years, okay? Fast forward 29 years. And you are riding out of my front uh, uh, drive out of our neighborhood. Just imagine you're in a car with me. I'm taking my son Judson to school as I do every morning. And I get to the end of our front of of our neighborhood. I'm getting ready to turn left on Rock Springs Road. And as I'm turning left, I glance right like you're supposed to do, a good driver does. And here I see this big purple and pink bus that rolls into our neighborhood. And on the side of it, on the side of it, it says... Drag Queen Express. And it's a party bus. I don't know where this party bus was going. I never did. I, you know, I, I was almost curious, like, turn the car around and go find out, but I didn't do that. Um, but it was that. And I was like, wow, you know, how things have changed and progressed over these last years. And I use the word progress on purpose because I think that's what our world sees is progress. And... Um, and so what do we do this when we see these things? When we see the trends that are going on around us? How should the church respond? Well, many will respond with shock and awe and dismay. Probably in some sense that's not an unnecessary or unreasonable response. Some will respond with anger and a fight the culture, man. Let's get that, right? Punch hard with the Bible or something or politics. But a question I want to ask this morning as we think about these considerations and how these things hit us is, is that the way the Bible would inform us to respond to these issues? And, and how would we, particularly as a ref, more reformed-minded church, um, respond to these issues? Because here's the thing, here's the, here's the dirty little secret, friends, is regardless of how we might say there's been this, in that 29 years, so much has changed, here's my argument to you. Nothing has changed. Yes, we might see a, a, an inclination and a dissension towards certain things, but I think we would see that and we'd go, oh my gosh, we're so far from removed from where we were 30, 40 years ago. But friends, our standard didn't start 40 years ago or 30 years ago. Our standard started way back in the garden when God created the heavens and the earth. 
And so when I say that, what I mean by that is cultural norms may change, and they may change significantly over the years, and they may hurt, and they may be painful for us to see as believers, but the real issues behind those cultural changes, they haven't changed. They're still the same. They're still very much the same things that happened in the garden. They're just more visible, perhaps, now, or more in our face now than they were before. Um, And so the world we see is on a path towards doing everything it can to deconstruct the world from God's norms, yes? It's just the reality we are. And they see this as progress. But Romans 1.18 through 25, we're probably familiar with it, tells us the root of this is driven from something much deeper. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, and on, uh, heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their righteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so that they, were without, they are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They traded God in for images to worship themselves primarily. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts of to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we look at these things and we see the realities of what we faced. And, um, and I just, again, I ask the question, how would he respond to these things? Well, again, as shocking and painful, as difficult as these things are, I don't know that our, first, our most important response is to respond with shock. Right? Yes, sin is wrong, and it's messing everything up. But shock should not, be our initial, should not even just be our only response. If we just respond to shock, what are we going to do? We're going we're to try to grab for everything we can to try to change things. Or same thing with anger. Rather, I believe the Christian is called... To grieve, to grieve the world, that the world has missed the beauty of God's design as we've read in Psalm 8 here a minute ago, and we continue to preach the redeeming power of the cross in spite of that to all who are willing to hear. When we think about all these things that are before us, the most natural response for the Christian is to grieve the reality of sin, yet continue to preach the cross of Christ. So this is our main idea this morning that I want us to see. Number one. Behold the beauty of God's creational design for mankind. We're going to go back and look at Psalm 8 here in a minute. Two, that the church would be emboldened. In spite of the reality of how everything is being, uh, being, I'm using the word deconstructed today, that we would still be even more emboldened to move toward those who deny these realities, the God's realities of the good creation, with, the God, with gospel conviction to love, to show compassion, and ultimately to proclaim the hope that we have found in Christ ourselves. Because that is the only answer we have to these things. And again, I'll, we'll get into those in more detail here in just a moment. So three things I want to do this morning. Again, very different sermon than I normally do. So one, I want to examine the notion of progress that our world is espousing. And it just means we're going to have to really be honest. And I hope I don't say anything that's 
too much for some young ears to hear. I don't think I am, but just be prepared, parents. You may have to explain some of these things. We're going to examine the modern idea of progress. Two, we're going to, um, we're, we Christians are going to learn how to preach a better and more satisfying understanding of humanness from Psalm 8. And then three, we're going to deal with our only hope for the world is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. Okay? So let's just take those three things in order for a minute, shall we? When you examine the modern idea of progress, what is it that we see? What is it that's being said? What is it that's being outlined? Well, let's just look at all the main things that tend to be involved with this issue of life. We'll just start with the one thing that has driven Saints of the Life Sunday since the beginning, abortion. I think most of us in here probably agree that there was at least a cultural win for, most of, uh, for, for those who would be more conservative in this when the Supreme Court returned the abortion back to the states. doesn't mean that the work's ended. doesn't mean that there's still not a lot of work to be done there, but at least there was something there. And we go, yeah, that was, I think we all say that was a win. Finally, we've been waiting for this for 50 years. Finally back. But I, but I just want to say, as much as we can be excited about that, and maybe should be excited about that, the issue is not over, is it? And neither, I believe, will it be over in, in, anytime soon. And neither do I believe that this is uniquely a 20th century phenomenon. I don't think abortion itself represents anything new. That in all of human history, if you, again, we've read this in scriptures, and we've seen this in the scriptures, that there has been an assault against life since the very beginning. That when you take every major culture in the world, in human history, and you find some form of child sacrifice, and it tells you that abortion is not new. It's just the newest form of it. We even saw it in Ezekiel 23, verse 39. They slaughtered their children. God's indictment, by the way, of who? Not Babylon. Israel. They slaughtered their own children for their idols. So when we look at the issue of abortion, the issue is well, m- much bigger than, than returning it to some political to the states and making it a political issue, it, although it is, can never not be a political issue, right? But it's, not, it's way more than that because mankind has sacrificed our children one way or the other to our idols throughout all of our history, and these idols rule our hearts, and that's why we approach the way we approach about children. Children oftentimes in culture tend to be a drag towards the things that we want most. So if you have a lot of children, guess what? You have less of. Yes, you're right. We have less money. Um, ask any parent here with children, uh, especially those of us who have, you know, several children. And, and, and the reality is we have less money, right? It's just the reality. And so what is, an, what is one of the main idols in our culture? Money, safety, security, comfort. Do you think that just because in America we have all these more modern technology that somehow or another we're any different than those who've went before us? Of course not. Of course not. The culture heralds a woman's right in our modern day to her own body as progress, but really, is that really progress? When you think about the toll that her body will go through because she, or when she gets an abortion and the psychological health that she will, I mean, struggles that she'll deal with. I mean, there's, these, by the way, are well-documented in science, mainstream science, by the way. We're not talking about Christian, you know, teaching or writing. We're talking about in science. And so when a culture hates its children and uses women to, as, as the means by which to eradicate children in some ways and deceives that, what we have is we see is, is, is there's this unnecessary 
toll they're willing to pay for their best life now. Right? You can see that when that happens in a culture, it's not a culture that's actually thriving, is it? It's a culture that's dying. In fact, birth rates in America right now are at their all-time low. European countries in America, we have all-time low in childbirth rates. And, um, and what do you think we'll do to our society if we continue to have less and less children in society? All the things we're building will eventually crumble because you don't have enough people to run them, lead them. You don't have enough economic development. I mean, just, I'm talking about this outside the Bible, but I think the Bible still speaks to these things, yes? What do you think happens when we do this? When you have some cities that tout that they have more pets per capita, per household, than they do children, what do you think happens in a culture like that? It definitely has a life, um, uh, it, it has a lifespan, right? It eventually will die. Now, I understand that those are hard things to hear, but they are true when you start to evaluate them. Well, how about, let's talk about issues of race and cultural equality and racial equality. Listen, let's be honest. There are still issues, and I think throughout human history, racism and culturalism and ethnocentrism have always been an issue. Every culture struggles with these in some way or shape or form, and we certainly have seen them happen in our own context, and they're real problems, and they're still real present problems, and I disagree with the notion that we talk about it too much personally because the reason why I think that's a little silly is because we don't think we talk too much about abortion, do we? Does that make, it problem, does that make the problem worse? If you talk more about abortion, does it make a problem worse? No, it doesn't. If we um, talk about slave trafficking or, or, or people trafficking, women trafficking, children trafficking, do we, if we talk about it too much, does that make the problem worse? No. We bring in light to the issue. If you're talking about the problem of pornography, does that make pornography worse? No. We're bringing light to the problem. It may make us uncomfortable when we talk about these issues, but there are still things that we, we bring to the light. Why? Because they're real issues that affect Humanity, yes? Now, the problem arises when our methods stray from God's design on how to deal with these issues. That's the problem. And so when we start talking about the issue of race particularly, is that when racism is not resolved by what the Bible says basically about how to do this, which is the content of one's character and repentance and faith of the people who, who act in such ways towards their brothers and sisters who are made in the image of God, and we then shift it towards other methods that deal more about, well, we deal with racism on systemic levels, and we deal with racism on, 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 on society levels, and we deal with issues on, well, racism's about equal outcomes, and all these other kinds of things that tend to go along with CRT and intersectionality and all these other things. Instead of dealing with racism on the face of it the way Scripture does, which is the way we repent to one another when we treat each other poorly, and we denigrate each other's identity and our cultural makeup and our ethnic makeup, when we then begin to put those kind of superiority and we deal with that and we don't deal with it in the context of the gospel telling us to repent, yet we then go into other and use other means and when you define racism, we have a problem. It's not progress. Because eventually you end up having to choose some over the others and the system just reverses the problem. Right? These are not helps about marriage equality and gender fluidity right this is a life is this not a life issue too some might argue it's not i'll talk about why it is here in a minute but but when you have biological males who believe they are women competing with biological females in sports like what happened in pin 
university last year and all those kinds of things, yes? Um, is this progress? The world says yes. When you have parents who are increasingly refusing to, refusing to identify their children as a boy or a girl, is that progress? Has that helped grow and expand the world as we know it? Parents even pursuing, and this is the most shocking part of it, this is the thing that's probably the most thing that I, I, I it's hard for me even to read, but when you have parents who are pursuing gender transition for their children earlier and earlier in their life, that they're willing to submit their children to chemical castration, mutilation of their bodies, extreme hormonal procedures, all for what? Progress? Or, or, by, or marriage equality. If you ask many people in our world, they say marriage equality was the greatest civil rights victory in the modern era. Have you heard that? If you haven't, I promise you it's out there. Marriage equality, by many, believe this is the greatest civil rights victory in the modern era. Okay. Let's look at the stats. When a burger felt gave the right to, to, to marriage equality. 47% of all U.S. adults who are married are, persons, are married to persons of the opposite sex. 0.6% of U.S. adults who are married are married to the opposite sex. That was in 2000, and, was it 16? Seven years ago? Today, the numbers haven't changed. What a victory. What a victory. Is it a victory? I would say no. Especially then if you look at the fact that divorce rate, although the numbers are still unclear about this, divorce rate among those who are in same-sex marriages seems to be trending way higher than those who are in opposite-sex relationships and marriages. And I mentioned a minute ago, you may think, what does this have to do with sanctity of life? I think it has everything to do with sanctity of life. Why? It's just not your own private ethical issues that are most important. Because if we look at the Bible, and we will here in a minute, God's instrument to spreading his imago Dei, which is the image of God in Latin, is through what? Procreational means between a male and a female. And much more than that is they are, God's instrument is that they're, it's between these male and humans, and it would seem that, that to me that is a sanctity of life issue, is it not? If God himself says the way in which he spreads life to the world is his instructions to male and female made in his own image in Genesis 1, 26 through 20 or 31, it would seem to me this is very much a life issue, a sanctity of life issue. When we have a world that is so bent on the distortion, we must speak about these things, even if they're uncomfortable for us to speak about. Male and females are called to marry, according to Scripture, and have children and build lives and covet it together so that they are the building block of real healthy societies. It's just the way it has been designed, friends. To try to argue away Genesis 1, 26 through 31 and try to say that this, these things are much more vague or actually have less, less structure is just foolishness. And so when we deconstruct this and play fast and loose with this, what happens to life as we know it? It's not progressing it will eventually, if not already, regress, right? 
I know I'm, I'm throwing you deep in the deep in the pool right here, right? So what the world, unfortunately, I think, if we are honest with ourselves, that heralds progress, what does the Bible define it as? Death. What the world heralds as progress, the Bible heralds as death to humanity. When you lose any concept of what it means to be human, when you lose the concept of what it means to be male and female as that unit, basic unit of humanity, and how are they to relate to one another, and how they are to work together, and how they are to play, they are to work together in God's image to populate the earth and to have give dominion to the earth and to multiply and fill the earth, we end up, when we, when we mess those things up, we eventually distort and regress culture as we know it. Now, I've thrown you in deep in the pool for a minute. Let me just make a point of clarity before we move on to our second point into Psalms 8. Psalm 8. It would be easy to take what I've just shared with you. And again, I could go on, right? You could go on. You have your own things you've read. And you could preach an awesome fight the culture sermon here, right? And many do. And I just want to say for a moment, though it's always important that we preach God's good law and God's good creation in Scripture, those who only preach this as a punch hard to culture, those sermons never change a thing. Because they don't emphatically give any hope behind it. They don't point people to what is a remedy to these things. And so those of us here in the room who have a more reformed, distinct understanding of what the gospel is and that the gospel is our only hope, we recognize that sermons that just punch hard at culture don't change culture. Those that bring Christ into clarity changes hearts and eventually one by one by one begins, the culture begins to change. And if it doesn't change, Jesus is coming back and God builds his church. So let me suggest to you that what is most needed in this, this hour that we find ourselves in is not angry, cold-hearted, uh, dare I say, conspiratorial alarmism towards our cultural opponents. And I know that's out there. It's out there. And I understand why we get there. Rather, what I would think is a believe, as we're going to see here in a moment, is a, a better way, is a bold confidence to preach a warm-hearted, sovereign grace gospel to the dead. Do you hear me? A warm-hearted, sovereign grace gospel to the dead. Warm-hearted means we were like you and Christ changed us, so we don't separate ourselves from you, although our sins may be different and our struggles may be different, we are warm-hearted in our, in our desire to see you hear the same gospel that we preach. It's sovereign grace because it is God's work to bring and draw the sinner into saving grace. That's the gospel our people need. That's the gospel our world needs so that it wakes the dead and gives hope to a dying world. If we venture away from this as our primary method, we venture into all kinds of issues to where the church's mission gets radically distorted as some kind of cultural like think tank. And the church is not some cultural think tank. The church is a gospel-preaching people who've been changed by the person and work of Jesus. And so, again, this... 
I'm getting there, friends, I promise you. That's what we say in our new members class when we go over our doctrine in our church. And we, we, we confess the New Hampshire Confession, also the 1689 Confession. If you look at our bylaws, that's what we have. But the New Hampshire Confession, why do we do that one? Why do we even say that? Because it, it tends to be a warm Calvinism. I know, some of us don't like that word. You, you're okay. All right. Um, but, 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 but they're warm. It, it means everyone's invited, but just warm. And, and, and so you hear the goodness of God's grace to you. Warm. So why this approach? Because this will draw gospel-changed people, you and me, to draw near to unbelievers with compassion and gentleness, with those struggling with, I don't know, same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. That's what a warm-hearted gospel will give you. It will give you the ability to walk with people who struggle in very dark places. It will call gospel-changed people to draw near to unbelievers. These unbelievers, I'm sorry, with that. But it also calls us, it'll draw, it will draw gospel-changed people into resting in the power of the cross above their own methods to try to change people. I know it's frustrating when we know someone we love dearly that struggles with any of these areas we've talked about. But when we have a gospel that says, that's enough, we can let ourselves off the hook a little bit and we can remain steadfast in the rest in Christ and the gospel and we can trust that the Holy Spirit will do the work. It will call gospel change people to draw near to young mothers who may find themselves in unwanted pregnancies, whether it's by their foolishness or someone else's, and make room for mothers who have perhaps had an abortion and didn't tell anyone about it? Is there a place for people like this in the church? I hope so. I believe the gospel grace allows that. In fact, if it doesn't, then I don't have a whole lot of hope myself. I have a close friend that I've worked with for many, many years in ministry since we've moved to Nashville, and I've heard her tell the story, the grief of having chosen in her 20s to abort a child and the grief that has caused over these generations between her and her husband and all the other things that came along with that. But I've also turned and seen the smile when she tells, finishes the story that being a part of a church that preached the finished work of Christ to her, which became a healing balm to her past sin and brokenness, and now she lives and serves the body of Christ in powerful ways. That's the gospel I want to preach. That even the most darkened center, in the most dark place, the most despairing place, will know that their story can be changed in Christ. That's a warm-hearted gospel. And in fact, to be honest with you, if you say you are in the reform camp or in a Calvinistic camp, and this is not your perception of the gospel, you're getting the gospel wrong. You're just getting it wrong. Because anyone who approached the gospel with arrogance, that I have the answers and you need to change and you need to do this, doesn't get the gospel of free grace to sinners 
who cannot fix themselves. And when we get that, that leads us into our second point. And I'll try to be brief in this second point. It causes us to preach a better and more satisfying understanding of humanness. Isn't that what we see in Psalm 8? David has been contemplating in this psalm about creation and his place in creation. And he sings and writes this song, and here's what he says in these first verses. Lord, our Lord, how majestic, or how magnificent, excuse me, is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants, in verse 2, and nursing babies, you have established stronghold on account of the adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. So he's contemplating all of creation, the beauty and the majesty of all of creation, and God's fingerprints all over creation. And he's standing there, and, and he's, it's like he's standing before the cosmos, and he's going, I am going to get blown away by this. I mean, just think about it. Try standing before the Grand Canyon and not feel your smallness, friends. Um, try driving down I-40 in, out of East Tennessee into Western Carolina and drive down through to Canton, get off at the Canton, North Carolina exit, go south down 74, down through the Maggie Valley, down to Franklin, North Carolina, and just tell me that you don't get lost in the majesty of what you see. I've driven that way a few times. It's unreal. Take a trip out west. Drive through the Glacier National Park, something I have not done yet. It's a bucket list thing for our family. And friends, all of this is just on our continent. It just scratches the surface of the beauty of creation. And that's just on this one little piece of the continent, on this one little planet, and all the cosmos. And here, David is standing before creation, and he's looking at it, and he's seeing the fingerprints of God, and he's writing a song about the fingerprints of God, and he's standing there, and he's just caught up in how crazy it is that those of us who, those of us who know God, how crazy it is to us that then we see other people in creation, other human beings who deny that. To, to, to look at creation and not be caught up in it and feel our smallest and deny the fingerprints of our God in creation and the purpose and the, and the, and the message of creation for us is mind-boggling to us, is it not? And I have a feeling like that has to be something of what David's thinking through here. Now, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm adding in there. Forgive me for that. But, it's just, but he's, he's contemplating all the wonderful majesty of creation and he cannot do anything when he looks at creation but to think about God. And to think about how small he is. Why? Because creation, with the fingerprints of God, silences God's enemies. Anyone who would stand before creation, who has any inkling of God being the source of that creation, and doesn't walk away with complete awe and complete smallness, has rejected the God of creation in some sense or, or, or fashion, yes? And God says, my creation invites you. My creation silences you. Regardless of its 
how sinful and depraved mankind can be, all things scream the glory of God and it will silence the enemies of God. If not now, it will in time. And all men will have to bow. And so then David turns his attention as he's thinking about the creation and his smallness before creation and he's showing us why, this, why he has drawn this posture. Look at verse 3. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. So he's observing all of this. It's good to observe God's sovereign activity and sovereign goodness in the creation as we know it. And it prompts him to ask that most essential question. Who are we? What is man in light of all of this? Now, it's not that he doesn't know because he's going to answer it here in verse 4 and following. But, I mean, verse 5 and following. But he's just standing there and he's just prompted to go and, and, and call the, the congregation that is singing this psalm somewhere or will sing this psalm somewhere. He's prompting them to say, to confess, what is man? And they have to, in order for us to answer the question, what do we have to be doing? We have to be standing before God. There's no way we can answer the question unless we stand before God. Why? Because that's exactly what he does when we get down to verse 5. I mean, who can speak when they stand before these things and not see our smallness and then begin to articulate what man is without having God as the source of that? Yes? My 16-year-old son... Caleb, or newly 16-year-old son Caleb, and I share a similar disposition in that when we go to the beach, I noticed this a few years ago, Caleb likes to walk down to the water's edge, and he just likes to stare out over the ocean. Just be pensive and thinking, and you know, I don't know what's going through his head. But I can think, I know. I don't know how you can stand before that and not, fear, not feel joy, not, fear, not feel awe, and frankly, not fear, feel dread. Because in any moment, a storm could arise and it would wash us away and there's not one thing you and I could do about it. That's why creation silences God's enemies because it, it shows us that we are finite, that we are small. And so when I see that and I think about that, it just brings my joy to my heart because this is the way we should all stand before these things because it should prompt us to great thoughts of God as he's revealed himself to us in his word. And so David answers the question in verse 5, what is man that you remember him? That when man, what is man that you look after him? And he says three things here. He says, you've made him a little less than God. Two, that you crowned him with glory and honor. And three, you've made him ruler over the works of your hands. Those are the three ideas that he expresses here. He explodes with joy knowing that what God has revealed about mankind and how that does not make sense in light of his smallness before this magnificent creation that God's fingerprints are on everything. And he's saying, to, he's saying and he's singing and he's exclaiming, I am made a little less than God. Now, some translations will use this and they'll say that made a little less than heavenly beings or some translations will say less than angels. But 
good, uh, but, but, but John Calvin's the one who really helped us help this with this a few, many, 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 many generations, centuries ago. And he helped us at the sense here in the, HB, in, in the, in the Hebrew and with the CSB, which I'm reading this morning, gets right, is that, it, 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 that the reality here is that you're a little less than God. Why? Because the scriptures never compare us humanly to angels, does it? Now, the angels compare themselves to us. They wish they were us, but they're, but they're not us. And the Bible never compares us to angels. What does the Bible do? We are made in the image of God. Yes, we are made in the image of God. In other words, there's a nearness to God that is designed into the very genome of humanity. And then he, and so when we go to Genesis 1.26 and we understand, he says, Therefore make man in my, our own image, male and female, he made them. He's not suggesting that there's some long line of divinity that you and I are falling in line of, and then we're just going to be the one who takes the place of the current divinity, right? Like, I'm not, we're not taking the place of Jesus down the road. Our friends in the Latter-day Saints Church get this wrong, unfortunately, vastly wrong. We're made a little less than God, not because we ourselves are, in, in, any, in, in fact, God, but that because God himself bestowed his grace upon us to make us in his own image. Our lives matter. And the way God designs us matters. And he says, goes on, goes further. He says, he's crowned us with the glory and honor. Humanity is designed, in some sense, to be princes and princesses over the created realm. We are co-regents who are designed to display, to cultivate, to protect under the sovereign rule of God. If you can't define humanity, it's because we've lost that. Right? Right? That God's sovereign rule over his prince and princesses who are now co-regents displaying and cultivating and protecting all things in light of who God is and over under his rule. And he says there he makes them ruler over his creation that these crowns are a royal decree to us given to mankind on how we are to carry out our regency on this earth. What this means for us then is this. When we think about the world as we know it and all the things that are going, we would think are going haywire in the world, we need to confess these things always. One, God is the rightful ruler over mankind. We are not. There's no way you can read creation. There's no way you can read scripture and come to the conclusion that somehow or another, I rule myself and God does not. There's just no way you can do that. The Bible makes it... A, emphatically clear from Genesis 1 all the way through the Bible. Two, mankind finds our most meaning and our most supreme satisfaction in the life, in life, in the grand design and purpose of God set forth for us, not some sense of our satisfaction with our inner selves. Certainly we need to do work on our hearts and our emotions inside of us. Those, that's, that is true. That's part of being made in the image of God in some sense. But, but, but the reality is our culture says to be human, you must be in touch with the most intimate parts of your inside self or whatever you have conceived yourself to be. Charles Truman has done great work on this in recent, in the last couple years. And he's saying that the reason we are where we are is we've exchanged verifiable science, if you will, about what is true, what is fact in terms of just what's in the world. And we've said that the most truth that you and I can find is how we feel about ourselves on the inside. And that's a problem, is it not? As we noted earlier 
Romans 1, 18 through 25, mankind is guilty of rejecting our royal privilege and has been engaging in a coup against God's sovereign prerogatives since the garden. That's what mankind has been engaged in. And mankind will be engaged in that coup until Jesus puts the death nail literally when he returns and judges all the earth. Therefore, the message has got to be the same to us today as it has been for all of humanity. We must repent of abusing this life. We must repent of abusing our bodies for our own pleasures, for our own pursuits, for our own prerogatives. That's our message to the world, right? Well, that's part of our message to the world. It's not the whole message to the world. But it's part of our message. It's the message God gives the world. We must repent of abusing our life and our bodies for our own pleasures, pursuits, and prerogatives. The law of God and the good design of God and creation are profoundly good things. But we can't stop there, right? Woo! I can give you the law, and we should give the law. That's what we've just been doing how God's created everything and given structure and design to everything. I can give you the law, but if I just preach the law to you, if we just preach the law to, the cre- to creation, we have tragically fallen short of our mission, which is to preach the gospel. It's when we preach the law this way, we just end with law, we don't give people any hope on which to actually see change. See healing. And that leads us to our third point. Only hope for the world, our only hope in the world, is the gospel of Jesus and the only one response of the church. We preach gospel, we preach law, but we never preach the law without the gospel. Like we teach what God says is true, but we don't give anyone the impression that if they just fix their how they've messed up the law that they'll be okay because they can't be okay paul agrees with me on this he says in romans 7 7 what shall we say then that the law is sin by no means but if it had been for yet if it had not been for the law i would not have known sin for i would not have known what it was to covet in the if the law had not said you shall not covet in other words paul agrees that the law is good and that the church must take use of the law in a in its appropriate and proper sense there's no sense in the christian life that the law of god becomes some kind of hindrance to our growth like you can't have a grace that's unhindered unhinged from the law you just can't do it it's just not made that way there's no sense of that and so it's popular to hear people equate the love of God's law to legalism today. But that's just not true. Loving God's law is not legalistic. Depending on the law to save you is legalistic. See the difference? But no, that's not legalistic. The means that the church uses to preach the law of God is good for all people, even if the world rejects it and will seek to marginalize Christians delighting in its goodness. And we see this in our culture today, yes? We see this everywhere. Have a Christian speak up on these issues and see how things blow up on social media the next day. I'll give you an example of it here in a minute. But even as we say the law is good, Paul also says the law is powerless. It's powerless to change our hearts. Romans 8, 1 through 3. I'll just go there and read it with you 
or myself. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So in other words, the law is profoundly good, but the wall itself can never save. So we can talk to the world and we can say to the world, this is equal, this is, this is sin, and this is not the way God has designed it. But we dare not leave it there. We follow Paul's line of thought here. And his line of thought, again, we're kind of working backwards. This is kind of fun this way. Um, he fulfills... The, the righteous requirement of the law through his son Jesus, as we just read. Look again, back to Romans 5. And uh, verses 12 through, uh, we'll just read a few verses here. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, the, and the death through sin is in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of a coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the man died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift that which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to many. Keep seeing, listening here. The gift is not like the one man's sin because from one, man, one sin came the judgment according to condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. In other words, if by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more in will those who receive the overflow of grace and gift of the righteousness through the reign and life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Let me just sum that all up for you. The law has only one, has, has three uses. It shows us our need of Jesus it acts as a, as, a, as a protection, if you will, to those of us, uh, uh, serves as a purpose of restraining sin in the world, but also has the use in our lives of those of us who are made new in Christ through the Holy Spirit as, a, as how we might apply God's truth into our own lives. So what Paul is saying here is the law is good, law's, but the law is not powerful. It's powerless to save you. Only Jesus can Jesus came to be the second Adam who would come and be and do what Adam didn't do in the first place. Okay? Now, why have I went through all of that? And why have I rambled like that for the last, I don't know how long I've been up here, so forgive me. Simply because of this. The Christian rests always. Even in this crazy world we live in, the Christian rests always in the righteousness of Christ. And when we begin to not do that, we begin to move away from the gospel. And we begin to move away from our identity in Christ. Two, not only do we rest always in the perfect righteousness of Christ, the Christian delights in the law, God's law, because of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. You and I would not love the law no more than our neighbor would had the Holy Spirit not come and live within us. Yes? 
And so we love the law. We're not anti-law people. This has a couple of different implications, right? Number one, it causes us to rest ourselves in the goodness of Christ every day as newly reformed people bearing the image of God. So we're still being formed and being conformed to the image of Christ right now through the rest of our lives until Jesus comes to us. And it reminds us that as we're being formed, sin has no dominion over us. And so brother and sister in here this morning, again, I don't want to assume I know where everyone's heart here is this morning. I, I can't. I can't possibly know that. You may be struggling with any form of the things we've mentioned up here before or something else entirely because of sin. But the believer, a genuine believer, will know, will remember, will return to Christ in faith and repentance and submit those struggles to him as he continues to do the work of regeneration and the work of sanctification in you to make you a whole person. It's not, it's, 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 you can st- we will still struggle with sin until Jesus returns, but we're not owned by it. We're not dominated by it. We don't live under its rule. The, the, the life of the, Christ, of the Christian will not be pretty sometimes. Many of us can testify to that in here this morning. But we know of God's faithfulness to us in the midst of it. And so the Christian understands and rests in God's law, not because the law saves them, but because they now see through the work of the Holy Spirit in them that the law is good. And in time, as God continues to grow us, we grow into our Im- the image of Christ once again. But the second thing is, is that we delight in the goodness of God as creation in all of aspects of life, and we're willing to proclaim that wherever we go, even if it costs us at times. So the Christian rests, the Christian delights. Three, the Christian will find that oftentimes our relationship with unbelievers and those within the world will be more and more uncomfortable. Why are we surprised by this? Why do we want so bad to be, you know, to be everyone's friend? Yes, we want to make sure that we give everyone an opportunity to hear the gospel. That's answer good and right impulse. But sometimes there are some people who just don't want to hear what you have to say, and, they're, and they don't want to have anything to do with what you say. So an example of that, everyone knows, I think many of us know Tony Dungy, the great NFL coach who's now an NBC football broadcaster. He spoke at the Right to Life uh, gathering this past week i didn't i watched about five minutes of it but it was a really great sermon tony's a man from everything i know about him seems to be a very genuine uh, christian very committed christian in every way has never really hedged his his convictions in any way shape or form but he's made but people love him except for keith oberman Keith Oberman, if you know him, he used to be on ESPN. Now he does all kinds of things. And he now has went on, and he's, he is campaigning for Tony Dungy to be fired from NBC. Why? Not because he got up on the stage and preached Christ, but because he got up on stage and he said what life is and what life is not. We're going to have rub with our culture, friends. I cannot take that away from you. And there's no amount of gentleness you can do in yourself that will that'll take that away. Sometimes it's just going to be uncomfortable. It doesn't mean we have to respond with, with, with ear, ire with other people. We don't have to respond with, 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 uh, with anger ourselves or frustration. But just know that's there. But here's the main point that I wanted to get to the entire time, and I'm finished. And we're done. We preach to ourselves, and we preach to the world that the only means for our freedom 
and, from the, and for their freedom is the meritorious work of Christ. You, that's the only hope they have. The world's a really broken place. It's a really messed up place. And what it doesn't need is more sanctimonious, angry Christians spouting off at the mouth on social media and in some godless way. I'm not saying that's what everyone's doing. I mean, there are people who generally are trying to engage. What they need from us, though, is to preach Christ, their only hope. Not the renovation of the system, not some new personal habit that they need employed in their life to make them a better person, not some new therapy that they found with some new counselor, not some new education, not some new social justice initiative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, they need Jesus. And if you think that's reductionistic, take it up with the writer of the book, right? Let's pray.